All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, or excuse me, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. That'd be quite a jump if we made it from Chronicles to Corinthians. 2 Chronicles chapter 6 this evening as we continue our journey there. Last time we began chapter 6, made it down as far as about verse uh, 11 there as we wrapped up our study together. Uh, and at this point in time, remember, we're looking at really we might refer to it as the dedication of the temple. We've watched uh, Solomon and the many thousands working under his supervision, building and constructing this great temple of God, as now they go from the tabernacle worship system, which was that temporary, remember, kind of mobile house of worship, wherever they moved around, they would move the tabernacle with them and uh, David had upon his heart to build this permanent temple for the Lord, and God didn't let David bring that to pass, uh, but rewarded the desire in his heart, but ultimately called Solomon his son, his successor, to be the one to actually construct the temple itself. And we've watched the construction process, the details of the temple and all of its furnishing. Last time we saw the ark be brought into the temple itself, that final furnishing, which really was, remember, the place where God manifested his presence over the ark and over the mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies, the rear part of the temple itself. Uh, and really, we now find Solomon as we come into chapter six and began to look at part of it together last time. Uh, he just began blessing the people and reminding them of how God had been faithful. And now as we come to chapter 6, verse 12 here in Second Chronicles, it tells us in verse 12 that Solomon then stood before the altar in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. For Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long and again remember we said that the biblical cubit is about a foot and a half or 18 inches so five cubits would therefore be about seven and a half foot uh, so this is kind of describing a almost you might say i guess a platform or a stage area the idea is here a stage that was about seven and a half foot long seven and a half foot wide so it was a cube and it was about three cubits higher about four and a half foot up off of the ground. The idea is just as he's standing in front of the entire congregation, this is sort of a national gathering here as they come out to the temple dedication ceremony. He's elevated so that the people can see him as he's been communicating to them in the first 10 or 11 verses. And now he's going to spend time just praying as the national leader, seeking God in regard to his plan and his will for their future. So Solomon says on this platform there, set in the midst of the court, it says that he stood on it, notice, and then he knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel. And second time we're told in verse 13 that he spread out his hands toward heaven. So what a beautiful scene here. You have the people assembled together there in a public gathering. You have Solomon, who's the king of Israel or the national leader at this time of Israel. And here he is up on this platform and beautiful, he's not concerned about being politically correct. He's not concerned about whether or not he's going to win the next election or not. It just says that Solomon at this point, standing before all the people, it says he lifts his hands before the people as a sign of surrender or dependence upon God. He's standing at first, and then we're going to see that as he prays, and the account in 1 Kings seems to indicate that he started out on his, uh, you know, standing up and then eventually fell down onto his knees as he begins praying, we'll see in verse 14, and the duration of chapter 6 really is Solomon's prayer. And it's a public prayer. It's a prayer he's praying out loud in front of the nation. I mean, wouldn't this be a beautiful thing? Imagine at the inauguration of a president or, you know, at some uh, special occasion, if a national leader, even a state leader would, before all of the public and citizens assembled, just raise his hands up and begin to just pray to God and ask for God's hand to be upon the people and the society and just falling on his knees in dependence with his hands up, just crying out to God, praying and leading the nation publicly. And just what a beautiful, beautiful scene this is. Would to God that these kind of things would come to pass in our day and age. But Solomon here, as the king begins to pray... And what's beautiful to see, again, here we have in the Old Testament and occasions that we find throughout both Old and New Testament of different individuals praying. And we take note at times of the variation in their posture. Uh, and again, remember at the end of the day, God is way more concerned about the posture or position of your heart than he is about the posture or position of your body when you're praying. 
because you can get on your knees and close your eyes and lift your hands to heaven and look really spiritual, but if there's a bunch of wrong junk going on in your heart, uh, God in his heart may be looking at that saying, well, <laughs> you may be on your knees in your body, but you're standing up and completely stubborn in your heart towards me because you're you know, all bitter about this or you're hateful about that, and, and, and really we're just playing the hypocrite before the Lord. God can, cares most about what's going on in our heart. By the same token, somebody may not physically be able to get on their knees. Uh, maybe they're physically unable to do that, uh, but nonetheless, they can be bowing the knee spiritually, if you would, before the Lord in their heart, and God sees that submitted heart. But this beautiful example here of Solomon, and he's praying, and really he's praying in a way that's very untypical to the way that a lot of us pray nowadays uh, in our Western culture and the way that we kind of teach our kids to pray, right? When we, you know, we're teaching the kids to pray very early on, just seemed like the natural inclination as a parent was, okay, close your eyes, bow your heads. Sometimes it was even fold your hands. And most parents know the reason you do that may be at the dinner table or when your kids are like, you know, three and five and seven is so that they're not pinching one another and hitting each other and do I mean, you just, you're trying to, you know, minimize the sensory distraction that children have so that's kind of almost seems one of the reasons we tell you close your eyes bow your head no distractions even go like this with your hands Uh, but in the bible we don't always see people closing their eyes bowing their heads uh, and folding their hands many times we see people uh, in lots of different postures here's solomon he starts out standing he eventually falls to his knees a very beautiful picture of just you know humbleness before the lord But as well, it says two times in verse 12 and 13 that he spread out his hands towards heaven. Uh, It almost seems to indicate as well that potentially his eyes were open as well as he looked up. And the idea of spreading out one's hands towards heaven, we see this throughout the word of God, of lifting of the hands or spreading out of the hands. It's just a picture, as I said, of of symbolically saying, Lord, I'm dependent upon you. I surrender, right? Uh, if a police officer were to, uh, for some reason, have to pull out his weapon and, and uh, get you, this is the idea of, I surrender, hands up, right? That's the idea. You know, why do we raise our hands in worship? Why does the Bible tell us to lift our hands sometimes when we sing to the Lord? Well, the idea of, is it's, a, it's an indication of surrender. Or if you turn them this way, the idea is, Lord, I'm empty-handed. I'm completely empty-handed. I have nothing to bring to this situation. I don't have the power to change it. I don't have the resources to resolve this, Lord. My hands are empty. I'm dependent upon you, Lord. You've got to act in this situation. I've got nothing to bring to the table that can solve this problem that I'm dealing with in my life. And so Solomon here, what a beautiful thing. Here's somebody, he's the king of Israel, incredibly wealthy. He's got lots of money to solve his problems. Incredibly powerful. He's the king of Israel. He's got lots of influence to push buttons and get people to do things that he wants to do. But yet Solomon humbly falls to his knees and lifts up his hand and says, God, I'm completely dependent upon you. I'm fully dependent. We need you, God, to help us in this situation. And again, beautiful to see these kind of things throughout the scriptures. Even as we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus himself, the perfect example of a man in his humanity. And we see Jesus in the gospels kneeling down and praying. We read times Jesus fell on his face in prayer. John 17, the greatest prayer we have probably of Jesus recorded as far as his communication to his father in a lengthy sense in John 17, it says Jesus spoke these words and he lifted his eyes towards heaven. The idea is he was praying with his eyes open. And he literally was just looking up to heaven with his eyes you know, wide open as he's communicating. You know, I had to say, even just recently, I've been you know, visiting a particular individual um, you know, who had a stroke not that long ago from our fellowship. And through the process, the Lord's you know, opened up his heart. I genuinely don't believe he was even converted before this whole process, but his heart's become humbled through the stroke and those kind of things. And his heart's become very tender to the Lord. And the last two or three times I visited with him and read some scripture with him, you know, I, I, sometimes right in the middle of like reading a Bible passage, he'll just start looking up and he just starts talking to God. And there's something about him just like, whoa, man. At first I almost thought like, well, that's a little bit weird. I was thinking like, but then I realized like, no, you know what that is? He is just so genuinely tender at this moment in his heart. In his mind, it's just like, God, I need you to really help me right now. And he just starts looking up and people are walking by us in the hall, probably thinking we're crazy and that's okay. But he's just having a conversation with God. Eyes wide open, look into the Lord. And what a beautiful thing to realize that we can do such things. And that's really helpful, especially when you're driving. Don't ever close your eyes and bow your heads when you're praying. I pray in my car too, or when you're walking, 
Keep your eyes open. That's a good way to pray that way, especially if you're in moving. Verse 14, here's Solomon's prayer now as he starts to pray. And this is what the chapter gives us uh, here, Solomon's prayer. He said in his prayer, verse 14, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant of mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. So notice Solomon, as he begins his prayer in a very beautiful way, we see this pattern throughout the scripture. He starts out his prayer by just giving praise to God. He doesn't necessarily just start running off his laundry list or telling God of all of his needs or the things he wants God to do. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing that, but we see in the word of God, these patterns of different prayers laid out for us by the Holy Spirit that are recorded. And so often we see them beginning in this manner where it begins with thankfulness to God, praising God for who he is, praising God for his great worth and the things that he does. You know, even Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he said to pray in this manner, not necessarily pray this prayer. That's what a lot of people do. He says, but pray in this manner. The idea is I'm, I'm giving you a model how to pray. And how did Jesus start that prayer? Our Father, that was amazing for a Jew to call God Father. That was incredibly intimate. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or how holy or awesome be your name. Started out with praise. And then it went on to other things. And so here, Solomon just begins with praise, we'll see, as he opens up this prayer. Lord, he says, there is no God in heaven or earth like you. Lord, there's nobody like you. And boy, isn't that true about God? There is nobody like the Lord. It's one of my favorite things about him. I hope it's yours too. I like different people in my life. I'm pretty impressed with the wife that I have and a lot of great you know, relatives and kids and friends and family. And there's some really great people. But I tell you this, there is nobody, there's nobody like the Lord. There's nobody like him that's constantly faithful, that never changes, that's always there for us, that's continually reliable, that, as he says here, who keeps his covenant of mercy with his servants. To keep a covenant means to be faithful to a promise. You know, many of us are dealing still to this day with the you know, ramifications of broken promises, people who've hurt us and wounded us that we thought never would. Well, God will never do that. He keeps his covenant of mercy. He continues to be patient with us and merciful with us, and he honors his commitments and promises, particularly being mercy, which we need a whole lot of. He says, verse 15, you have kept going on what you promised your servant David my father you have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day now as he moves on to his prayer he starts to talk about the faithfulness of God and he's just praising God for his great faithfulness and reliability and and we saw this same refrain Solomon used it last week in our study in chapters five and six when we were looking there he, he said this in those chapters as well, back to this same statement, Lord, what you've spoken with your mouth, you fulfilled with your hand. It's a perfect testimony of God's faithfulness that whatever God promises, God will be sure to perform. Whether it's a promise in his word written out and recorded in scripture, whether it's a personal promise that maybe God may give to you in regards to something in your life individually or just some personal thing the Lord speaks to you that you know was just a promise that he's given to you about something in your life or something he'll do or take care of. Whatever God promises, he has the power to perform. Human beings, again, can't always do that. Sometimes even human beings want to be faithful, but they end up not being faithful because they don't have limitless resources like God does. But whatever God promises, one, God cannot lie, he cannot change, and he has the power to perform anything he promises. So what a wonderful thing. If the Lord says it, it's guaranteed. It's something that we can rely on. And how many times have we seen God come through in us, our lives where his hand is accomplished? And here, this is what Solomon's saying. He says, Lord, what you promised to my father David, he says, with your mouth, you fulfilled it, Lord with your hand as it is to this day. Now, in light of that, verse 16, therefore, Lord God of Israel, now he says in this day, keep what you promised your servant, David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit on me before the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way that they may walk in all my law as you have walked 
before me. And now, O Lord God, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. So that was one of the promises, remember, that God gave to David when he was the king, that David, there will never fail to be one of your descendants to sit upon the throne because God gave the dynasty, the line to David. Remember, David wanted to build God a house and God said to David, look, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a dynasty, a lineage. Ultimately, the, 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 you know, the, the spiritual line of Messiah would come through David's house, through David's dynasty and his family line, and there would continue to be a descendant of David upon the throne. And so Solomon here, being the first of those successors of David's son, says, Lord, I'm asking, you've already fulfilled and, and done so much for my father David. So in regards to this promise, Lord, he's saying, I'm asking that you would bring this to pass, that now you would keep what you promised in your word to my father, David, he says that your word, verse 17, let your word come true. And again, what a beautiful way to, to pray. Solomon, again, he's reflecting upon the faithfulness of God. And as he reflects upon the faithfulness of God in the past, that's what gives him faith and confidence to rely upon God's current faithfulness in his life. He says, Lord, you have fulfilled your promises to my father. Your hand has fulfilled what you've spoken in the past. So he says, so now, Lord, because you've proven to be faithful so many times before, that gives me confidence to say, God, be faithful again. Lord, I'm asking you to be faithful now, right now in my life, what I need for you to do in this day, in this season of my life. And I love how verse 17, he bases, let your word come true. God, you spoke this. He quotes it there in verse 16. You spoke this. This is your word. So let your word come true. And I tell you, folks, when we pray, this is a great model because it's wise in prayer to ask God to fulfill his word. Because the word of God is the will of God. It tells us in the New Testament in 1 John that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. A lot of times, well, how do I know if it's God's will when I'm praying for something? I can tell you one way you will always know if it's God's will <laughs> if you're praying for something. You pray the word of the Lord. You pray God's word. You open up your Bible and you don't just read your Bible and then maybe pray about some things later. You read your Bible and pray as you're reading your Bible. Lord, you say right here in your word, so on and so forth in this verse. So Lord, I'm praying that you would do this in my life. Lord, I'm praying for my son or my daughter in this way. Lord, I'm praying that you would work in this way because Lord, you say here in your word and you use God's word as the basis and framework to pray and to ask God to just fulfill his word because that's his desire, that's his will. And it's one of the most helpful ways to be able to pray for things to just as you're reading your Bible, don't look at it as kind of two isolated things. Years ago, I would pray, then I'd read my Bible, or you read your Bible, then you pray. Now I just have an open conversation. I just open my Bible and I read and pray. And I just talk to God as I'm reading through the verses, as things speak to me, I bring them before the Lord and I let that kind of guide my prayers. And what a great thing. You could take any promise of God and just pray it and ask God, Lord, you said this. Lord, you said this, so I'm, I'm troubled. Would you do this, Lord? Your word promises me this, and what a wonderful thing. And here we see Solomon taking this great wisdom to do that. Look what he says, verse 18. He says, but will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? That's a great question. Solomon says, will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, the heaven of heavens, he says, cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. So basically Solomon's just making mention as he's praying of his honest admission. Lord, we know that we've built you this great house, this glorious temple to honor you. But Lord, we know you're not isolated and restricted in your presence to this temple here, that somehow the locality of the temple was the only place that God's presence was and that if they wanted to see God, they had to go to the temple. And Solomon understood this. God, you're way too big to be restricted to just some building. And often we can make that mistake. It's like, you know, I, I, you know, somehow the presence of God is stronger in a church building or some structure. Look, the reason God's presence should be stronger, if anything, in a church building is because God's people are present. The presence of God is with the people of God because the Bible tells us now we're temples of the Holy Spirit on the earth. There's not a physical temple anymore. We now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells and resides God's presence in each one of us. 
So when we come together, the presence of God is among us because the presence of God's within us as believers. So here, Solomon understood, Lord, it's not just in this locality that your presence is manifested. And he wanted to make that clear as he was you know, coming to the place of dedicating this temple to the Lord. He says, Lord, you're way too big for that. We would never think, he says, the heaven of heavens can't contain you, God. You're that incredible. But I do like his first question in verse 18. Will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Did Solomon have any idea that indeed God was going to dwell with men on the earth? And it actually was going to come right through his family line from David to Solomon all the way down to the son of David, ultimately, Jesus. Because God did dwell with man on the earth for a period of time in the life of Jesus. Remember one of the names of Jesus? He was to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so ultimately God did dwell in a restricted way for a period of time in a human body on the earth. Verse 19, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry, he says, and the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you have said you would put your name, and God had given that promise, so he's saying, Lord, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes, notice, toward this place and the Jews often typically would do that they would pray facing towards Jerusalem and towards the temple because they knew that it was within the temple in the holy of holies over the ark of the covenant where God would manifest his presence not where God would restrict his presence God's way too large but God would manifest his presence among the people there and so they would symbolically look toward the temple even Daniel chapter 6 remember when Daniel gets in trouble uh, for not uh, observing some of the you know rules and, and uh, regulations of the kingdom and they ultimately throw Daniel into the lion's den and what was Daniel doing wrong it says Daniel three times a day would open up the windows of his room and he would look towards Jerusalem and he would pray he, he understood what Solomon was talking about. The Lord, even I'm home here in Babylon, he would look towards the Lord. In that day, they looked towards the temple, the place where sacrifice was made, right? Today, you and I, we look in a direction as well. We don't look towards the temple where sacrifice is made. We look toward, in a sense, the sacrifice of Christ who took upon a body, in a sense, his own body was the temple of God as he was sacrificed for our sins. And we look to Jesus as we pray. We come to the Father through Jesus' name and through the ultimate sacrifice he made. But notice Solomon had a clear understanding because verse 21 clarifies that. He says, And may you hear the supplications of your servant and your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place, hear from, do you see what he says there? Heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So he says, Lord, we're play, praying towards this place, but we know you're not located to just this temple building itself, the structure of the Lord. He says, hear from heaven. That's your true dwelling place because you're God. You inhabit the heavens and the heaven of heavens can't continue. So he says, Lord, hear from heaven our prayers. And when you hear, he says, notice, forgive. And he's going to make a bunch of references to their need of forgiveness many times in this chapter. And you know, it's been said before, man's greatest need is forgiveness. It's not money. It's not more relationships. It's not more materials. It's not more possessions. It's not more the, the deepest need in our life, it's not health. The deepest need in our life is forgiveness. Because guilt is something we all carry in our lives, and guilt is a crushing, suffocating thing to the internal part of a human being. It's what makes lots of people behave in really bizarre ways. And if you boil it all down and fundamentally bring it all down, whether they recognize it or not, what it is, there is undealt with guilt that is plaguing their soul that makes them incredibly angry, incredibly mean, incredibly self-destructive, incredible. I mean, just all the manifestations of the ways that people end up behaving that are not healthy and not pleasing. It, you boil it all down, it's, it, there's undealt with guilt that's never been resolved because they've never let God deal with that in their heart and come to terms with receiving forgiveness from Jesus. And so he says, Lord, when you hear forgive, and now he's going to speak of their great need of forgiveness in many ways. He says, if anyone, verse 22, sins against his neighbor 
and is forced to take an oath and comes to this, uh, take an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. So Solomon says, when, when issues arise in relationships and there's some problem that happens between two people, there's a disagreement. Hey, I loaned you money and you didn't loan me any money. And, and there's this dispute back and forth, relational issues, and they would come to the temple. He says, when they come to the temple, he says, Lord, would you sort it all out? Would you, by your presence and being an all-knowing God, sort it out? And he says, bring to revelation the one who's genuinely guilty, he says, by bringing his way on his own head. In other words, Lord, you reveal who's the real guilty party. And Lord, you justify the one that's righteous and, and just sort it out. And boy, you know, God has a wonderful way of doing that. God has a wonderful way of just being able to ultimately bring to pass where real guilt lies and ultimately we can just trust God to be our defense and ultimately justify if indeed we're the one that's righteous in a given situation. Verse 24, he says, or if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy, notice verse 24, because they have sinned, that's the cause of their defeat against their enemies, because they've sinned against you. And then they return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this temple. Then hear from heaven again and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave them and their fathers. Now, what Solomon's going to be doing here, I know it's stretching a ways back for those of you who've you know, been with us back that far. But if you remember back in Leviticus chapter 26, there was all the pronouncing of the blessings and the curses that God gave to the people. And in Leviticus 26, just one of the places where on a few occasions, God basically in summary said, look, if you obey me and you obey my word and you follow my statutes, then God said to the people, I'll give you strength against your enemies and you'll be victorious in battles. Even if you're outnumbered, you'll still conquer your enemies because my power and strength will be with you and you'll have the rains from heaven that you need and, and, and you know, the land will be healthy and fruitful and God would give all these promises and God would say, but if you turn away from me, and you rebel against me and worship other gods and don't follow my word and don't obey what the will of God or the word of God declares, then God will say, you're going to bring these curses, bring these curses upon yourself. You'll be weakened and defeated by your enemies and you'll be vulnerable and conquered by people that shouldn't conquer you. And you'll find yourself dealing with lack of rain and God will withhold those blessings and so forth from them to get their attention. So here he's now beginning to run through this list. That's really what we have happening is Solomon's reflecting on, again, what the word of God said. And that's why he's saying the things that he is. So he says, verse 24, Lord, when, when we're defeated in the future by an enemy because we've sinned against you. Take notice. So many times in the Old Testament history of Israel, it seems more often than not that typically whenever Israel was being defeated, it was because there was sin in the camp. Because when there wasn't sin in the camp, God would give them victory and they would be strong. But when there was sin among them and they'd rebel against God, God would make them weakened and they would be vulnerable and they would find themselves defeated and overcome. And always remember, folks, whether on a national level, a family level or a personal level, this is one of the byproducts of sin. One of the byproducts of sin is it always brings defeat in our lives. We can't live in sin, walk in open, defiant sin, and expect God to give us victory and to be con No, sin brings defeat into our lives. God's not going to bless doing what's wrong. It's better for us to get things right and ask the Lord's forgiveness. That's what God's going to bless. And so he says, if we're defeated because we've sinned against you and we return and confess and pray, then he says, Lord, forgive us. And, and deliver us from the defeat that's happened in our lives and the enemy that's conquered us. Verse 26, he goes on, same idea. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain. Again, God said that he would do that. If they turned away, God said, I'll, I'll turn off the rain. And in an agrarian society where they needed the rains for their crops to be fertile and produce, it would cause great famines and difficulties. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain, again, because they have sinned against you, God would bring national struggle Interesting, God can break an economy sometimes if people are sinful. He has a way of getting attention. When they pray toward this place and confess your name, then turn from their sin because you afflict them. Then again, he says, verse 27, God, hear in heaven, 
Forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that they may and teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land in which you've given to your people as an inheritance. Interesting how as Solomon is praying through these things, kind of almost knowing in advance, interceding God, I know we're going to fail. God, because we're sinful people and our nation is going to turn away from you, God. And God, you've done so much for us. But when we do this, doesn't say if we do, Lord, when we do this, and then the discipline comes into our lives and he says, Lord, when we humble ourselves and we're, we're broken in heart and we confess and we turn away, then he says, Lord, we're also trusting that you said you'd be gracious. And God, we believe that you'll forgive, so please forgive us. And then restore the reins and restore that which we did to harm ourselves. And I like how he says, verse 27, and teach them the good way in which they should walk. And God's so gracious to do that. God corrects us but then he teaches us the good way in which we should walk. He shows us the way in which we might correct that maybe which we were doing wrong. Verse 28, and when there is famine in the land and pestilence or blight or mildew or locusts or grasshoppers, they'd come in and devour the crops and you know, steal away what would have been their harvest. And when there are enemies that besiege them in the land and their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness they're in, these are all consequences they bring upon themselves for sin against God. Whatever prayer or supplication is made by anyone or by your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands toward this temple, the idea is in repentance. And I love the way that verse 29 indicates, notice the sense of, of, of inward guilt when each one knows his own burden and his own grief. You know, the human heart knows the burden of guilt. It knows the, the, the burden of grief, of sadness when we feel sorry that we've you know, done things that maybe were foolish or, or rebelled against God and we feel the grief. And that's a good thing. You know, to feel grief over sin is good. The scary thing is when you can do something wrong and you don't feel grief over it. That's a concern. To be brokenhearted over our sins and failures, that's, that's a good thing because it means our heart is still tender before God. So he says, when each one spreads out his hands, knows his burden and his grief, then hear from heaven, he says, verse 30, your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone, Solomon says, know the hearts of the sons of men that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Notice what Solomon takes note of there in verse 30 as he's just praying these things out loud. He says, Lord, whose heart you know, verse 30, for you know the hearts of the sons of men. You know, only God genuinely knows what's going on in the heart of each and every individual. Only God knows that. Sometimes we think we know what's going on in someone else's heart, but quite honestly, we're playing the place of God when we assume that. Only God knows what's going on in someone's heart. And so therefore, really, at the end of the day, only God's really the one that could be justified to, to judge a person, to deal with a person in that way. And we can inspect fruit. Certainly, Jesus tells us that by people's fruit, we would know them. And certainly, we can use discretion when we see bad fruit. And that, I mean, that, that's, that's one thing. But being a fruit inspector doesn't mean that I have the right to then go to the next level and say, well, and the reason why they do that, I know their motive, I know their incentive. I know what they're thinking. I know the reason why they're... Look, the, the, only God knows the heart. Only God knows what's really going on inside of somebody's heart. And honestly, only God even knows our hearts. You know, that's why the psalmist prays in Psalm 139 when he talks about how well God knows him and he says, Lord, before a thought's you know, a, a thought even comes to my mind before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. God, you know my thoughts you know my words before I even say them. You know, we've talked about before where that is you're about to say something and God already sees what you're about to say before you even open your mouth and he's going, oh no, I know what she's going to say. I, I know what he, oh, I know he's going to answer that. I know what he's going to say. God knows us that well. That's why the psalmist at the end of the prayer in Psalm 139, as he's talking about how well God knows us, he says, search me, O God. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, the psalmist is saying, God, I don't even really know myself. I don't, because we're so self-deceived, often we think of ourselves in much better ways than we really should sometimes. And so the psalmist says, God, search my heart and reveal 
my heart to me, God. Let me genuinely see if there's something wrong in my heart. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate that and help me to make correction and respond to it. Lord, you alone, you know the hearts of all men, he says. Verse 32, moreover, concerning a foreigner, Solomon says, who's not of your people, Israel, that is someone outside of the nation of Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. That is, they hear about the God of Israel, they hear about his work among the nation of Israel, how they're blessed because they serve the one true God. And they say, hey, you know what? I want to go there and be a part of that nation because they love God there and they honor God there. And so this foreigner comes from another land, not wanting to change Israel, but to become a part of Israel. And, and so God says, when these foreigners come from another land and they want to integrate and be a part of, of what I'm doing among you as a people and to worship your God together with you, then he says, he says, by your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven, your dwelling place. And he says, and do according to all that which the foreigner calls, he says, you and all the peoples of the earth may know that your name and fear you as we do your people Israel that they may know that this temple which I've built is called by your name. So I love Solomon's heart. Solomon's heart there as he's talking about this, he says, Lord, when people outside of Israel come, the Gentiles from any other nation, because they want to worship you, he says, God, I'm asking that your love and your kindness and your faithfulness be shown to them as well. That all the world may know that you're a God who loves all peoples and all nations. You know, it's interesting that he says there, when they come from different nations and come and pray in this temple, then hear and do for them just like you would do for us. Ultimately, when we get to Isaiah chapter 56, it tells us there regarding God's house, Isaiah 56, that God's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. For all nations. Did God uniquely work through Israel? Does he continue to uniquely work through the nation of Israel? Yes, they are by sovereign grace God's chosen people. And God chose them among all people to bring the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through, to bring the word of God through, to bring to pass his, his plan and facilitate his eternal plans for earth. But God always intended that Israel would be a witness to all the earth. They didn't always comply too faithfully, but God wanted to reach all people with the majority of which most of us are, Gentiles, people from all other nations and nationalities, that we might be able to come and be a part of God's family and God's house and be able to pray and seek him and receive the blessings that God wants to give into our lives as well. Verse 34, he says, And when your people go out to battle against their enemies, wherever you send them, isn't that interesting? They go out to battle, and sometimes when they were going out to battle, it says that God was the one sending them. God was divinely leading them at times to engage in battles where you send them. If you sent them on the battle, God, not every battle's that way, but if you send them, when they pray to you toward the city which you've chosen and the temple which I built for your name, then hear from heaven and their prayer and supplication and maintain their cause. That is, sustain them, God, in the midst of the conflict. Protect them. Keep them safe. If you've sent them into that battle, then Lord, you uphold them in the midst of the battle, protect them, be their defense and give them victory in the middle of the battle that you sent them into. And what encouraging thing for you and I, because look, it may not be a physical, natural battle or combat per se in the sense of with uh, weapons and warfare, but the Bible tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but there are spiritual battles that we have to engage in sometimes where we have to stand our ground for Jesus Christ, when we have to stand upon the truth of God's word and be willing to, in some ways, maybe engage in what seem, might seem like a little bit of combat because we have to defend what's right and what's proper before the Lord or the Lord may send us into a situation and we have to do what's right in the sight of the Lord and it may bring some conflict from other people who don't agree or don't appreciate and value the same things that we do. But when the Lord's sending you and leading you, you can stand your ground in faith and trust that he'll maintain your calls. He'll be with you. He's going to be your defense and stand with you and give you victory in the midst of that if he's the one who's leading and directing you. Look at verse 36, great reminder. He says, and when they sin against you, and then Solomon's prompted by the spirit, for there is no one who does not sin. That should be underlined in your Bible. <laughs> 
for there is no one who does not sin. Now, has God put that in his word to basically make us feel we have an excuse and a re- hey, the Bible says there's no one who does not sin. So therefore, I just want to fulfill God's word, so I guess I should sin. No, that, that, that's, that's not a, a, a permissive statement. It's a revelatory statement to tell us that, listen, one thing is true of every human being. We all fail. There's no one who's perfect. There's no one who does not sin. Even if you try your best, you're still going to sin and fail and make mistakes on occasion. There's no one who does not sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that in the New Testament. There's no difference. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And it's crucial that we tell people that. And we did the outreach last night, North National Night Out, over here in the park around the corner for Northfield. And, you know, predominantly what we had a chance to share the gospel with through the braces we did was, was children. And I remember one occasion last evening when I had like five girls sitting there with me. And I believe my research, they were all going into fifth grade this year. And, and I just felt strongly impressed as I was going through and sharing the different colors of the beads and talking that, that when it came to pass to talk about the dark bead that we had, which represents sin in all of our lives, to really impress upon these five young girls that they're sinful, that they're guilty before God. What are they doing in fifth grade? Trust me, they're doing some off-the-wall things in fifth grade by now. But I just strongly felt impressed before I talked to them about Jesus' forgiveness and love to let them feel a sense of their own personal guilt in their little conscience before God so that they'd see that they need a Savior, that they need forgiveness, that they would be humbled in their hearts even at that age before the Lord. And the beautiful thing is the Holy Spirit blessed that and all five of them prayed to receive Christ. But, But we need to allow people to realize this. You know, we live in a world where we don't want to call anything sin anymore. Oh, you don't have sin. What you have is, you know, you have this or you have that. Or, I mean, we have a title and a label for everything now. You know, it's, it's you know, everybody has, you know, this condition or this whatever, you know, and, and we, we throw out all these labels and we make excuses and justifications for everything rather than, no, let's just... That's a struggle with sin in your life. It's called sin. You know, we create new titles for everything because we don't want to take responsibility for the guilty people that we are before God. But it's crucial that we do. That's what makes us cry out for a Savior and realize how much God loves us and how good and merciful He is. So He says, when they sin against you, if there's no one who does not sin, and you become angry. Guess what? Sin actually does that because God's holy. You become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy. And they take them captive to a land far or near. That would often happen. They'd be captured by Babylon or captured by the Philistines or conquered by the Assyrians. Again, sin always makes us a prisoner to the enemy. For them, it was true literally and nationally. For us, it's true many times spiritually. When we sin, we make ourselves vulnerable to the enemy who a lot of times takes us captive. And we find ourselves in prison to some area where the enemy kind of makes us a prisoner to some struggle or sinful activity. Yet, verse 37, look, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent, repent means to change your mind so that you change directions. The word repent does not mean sorrow. The Bible speaks of godly sorrow and remorse. A lot of times people are sad when they know they've sinned or they're remorseful. Look, that's, that's a step, but that's not repentance. As I said before, I have, some of you have as well. I know, with, you know, police chaplaincy ministry and pastoral ministry, I've been in prisons. And, lots of people are sad because they made bad choices and they got caught. But then I know individuals who, when I was police chaplain, you know, they, they'd, they'd be very sad, but then they'd get out and they would go repeat the same offenses again. That's not called repentance. Repentance is I completely change my mind in such a way that I change directions. I stop going north because I recognize north is wrong and I'm sad I've been going the wrong way north. But more than that, I'm now going to go south. I'm going to turn around. That's what repentance is. It's a change of behavior, not just a, you know, a sadness over what we've done wrong. They're vastly different things. So he says when they come to themselves and they repent, And make a supplication in the land of captivity, saying, we have sinned and done wrong and have committed wickedness. Notice, no excuses. There's ownership. We have sinned. 
we have done wrong and committed wickedness. That's how you can tell when repentance is starting to happen. When you're not making excuses anymore, when a person is saying, I have done wrong. I'm not making any more excuses. I take full ownership for what I've done. I'm guilty. I'm wrong. What I've done is wrong. That's genuine repentance. I'm wrong and I want to change. And when they return to you, verse 38, he says, with all their heart and all their soul, that is, they're turning back to the Lord in the land of their captivity, often they would be in Babylon or Syria, and pray toward their land in which you gave their fathers, the city which you've chosen, and toward this temple which I've built for your name. Then hear from heaven again, he says, your dwelling place, their prayer, their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Again, beautiful illustration that Solomon gives. Daniel carries this out even when he's in Babylon, using this as a model way to pray for the nation that God would restore them. And through Daniel's intercession, ultimately, God does, after 70 years, bring them back and he restores them. He forgives the people and he restores and he begins to work through the nation of Israel once again. You know, I read the language here. In many ways, it reminds me of Luke 15 and the, the story of the prodigal that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15 when he says there in verse 37 in our text, when they come to themselves and they repent and say, we have sinned and they return to you. That's exactly the story Jesus tells in Luke 15 of the prodigal. Remember the prodigal son? He says, look, I don't care, dad, what you think. Just give me my stuff. I want to go do my own thing. And the father allows him. He honors the son's free will. Okay, that's what you want to do. Breaks my heart, son, but you have a free will. And he lets him go. And for a period of time, he spends all of his wealth and he just indulges himself selfishly and carnally and does everything he can to just try and satisfy and fulfill himself. And what happens? He finds himself in a foreign land. He's out of money. He wasted all his money. He spent it on carnal, wild living. And now there's a famine in the land and he's hungry and he goes to a pig farmer and he says, look, I'm starving I'll do anything. And ultimately, it says he finds himself eating the pig slop. And then Jesus says, and then he comes to his senses. And he says, what am I doing? In my father's house, even the servants fare better than this. And he comes to his senses when he's eating the pig slop. And it says, then he has an attitude of repentance. He owns up to his wrongdoing and he humbles himself and he goes back to his father and the father lovingly, graciously welcomes him back, forgives him, restores him. Beautiful picture of just the grace and the love of the Lord. But again, it took him coming to his senses. It took a process. You know, and, and sin sometimes is, for some people, a, a process. It's the, it's the painful consequences that cause people to have to come to themselves, to come to a reality check. Sometimes we have to go through that. We have to struggle through and realize how genuinely miserable it is when we live outside of God's will and God's design that makes us want to repent and change and come to our senses and, and turn to the Lord and take ownership. And that's when something really real happens and a change comes into our life. You know, and sometimes we need to go through that. Sometimes we need to let people we love go through those kind of things for their own benefit. Verse 40, he says, Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive, he says, to the prayer made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Beautiful description, clothed with salvation. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us that we're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, his salvation which makes us righteous, though sinful, in our standing before a holy God. The New Testament tells us that now we're like priests of, of the New Testament, that we are used in the same way to be ambassadors and servants of the Lord, and we're clothed with the salvation of Jesus. He says, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. How wonderful that we can always do that. There's not much good sometimes to rejoice in in life but you can always rejoice in the goodness of the Lord. O oh, Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant, David. Look at chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Look what happens as a result of this prayer. We'll kind of wrap up with this tonight. Good place maybe to just enter back into worship. It says, and when Solomon had finished praying, that prayer that we just read, when Solomon finished praying, 
fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshiped and praised the Lord saying, he is good, his mercy endures forever. You want to talk about God putting a nice amen stamp on your prayer? This guy stands up as a national leader. He spreads out his hand, he falls on his knees and he just starts praying an honest, humble sincere prayer unto God on behalf of himself and the nation and at the end of that prayer he doesn't even get the opportunity to say amen and God says I'm going to say amen and it says the fire of God falls from heaven God sends a miraculous supernatural fire and it just consumes and devours all the offerings that are there on the offer, on, on the fire there I love the, the language the, the fire of God came down from heaven would to God that we would pray in ways that our prayers would be pure-hearted and fervent and passionate in such a way where, where God would just, in a sense, answer by fire. That the fire of the Lord would just be poured out upon our lives as living sacrifices that we might, in a sense, be just fully consecrated to the Lord. That we would be more on fire for the Lord. That the Spirit of God would baptize us with fire and power to just burn brightly for the Lord. And it says the glory of the Lord filled the temple. We saw that at the end of chapter 5, remember? This is the second time now the glory of the Lord filled the temple so strong that the people literally couldn't even do anything. That God's presence was just manifest so strong that all they could do is bow on their faces and worship. Because they were just overwhelmed by how incredible God was. And it just overwhelmed them in their being. And I love it. Here's the second time the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. The second time. God did it again. And you know what? That reminds me of something. That God does things again. God does things again. He did it in chapter 5 and now we see him doing it again as the result of Solomon's prayer. God delights to answer prayer. God delights to move in power and work in ways and God's just longing for us to cry out to him, to genuinely seek him and to move in such a way. And you know what? The things that we've seen God do before, when we read something, I think, wow, that must have been really awesome for something like that to happen. And look, I'm not hoping that God pours out a fire lightning bolt in the middle of the sanctuary. But we're all living sacrifices now, the Bible says, unto the Lord. And would to God, I wish that God would fill me with fresh power and with his presence and the fire of God in my heart and life to a greater degree. What wonderful things might happen. Let's stand together. Let's pray.